morning again. I want to take a little bit of time this morning to talk about some of my spiritual heroes. These are people whose words have molded how I think about the world and the person I want to be. Their voices seem to me to be an example of the words and deeds of prophetic people that Unitarian Universalists describe as one of the sources of the living UU tradition. You've already heard from two of my heroes in the service so far. Our story this morning was adapted from the extensive works of Jalal ad-Din Muhammad Balki. He is commonly known as the to the English-speaking world as Rumi, a reference to his home country of Rum, the Byzantine, i.e. Roman, province of Anatolia. He lived from 1207 to 1273, born in Khorasan, but a traveler through his life across Central Asia and along the Silk Road. He was a devout Sunni Muslim, a jurist, scholar, theologian, and mystic. And he was a prolific poet. Rumi's spiritual couplets written in his native Persian consist of 25,000 verses aiming to teach his followers how to reach their goal of being truly in love with God. His book, The Works of Shams of Tabriz, contains 35,000 more couplets and hundreds of other poems. His poems are elusive and call on us to look at the deepest and the highest things. In the reading, you heard from another such prophetic voice, that of Mary Ann Evans, a Victorian novelist from the Midlands in England. Mary Ann is also better known by a different name, that of George Eliot. She was a novelist, translator, and journalist, and critic, and editor, and, and, and. She led a life scandalous to polite society, living openly with a married man, indeed taking his name. Yet through both her life and works, showed an intense concern for the fundamental basis of morality. George Eliot was not a mystic. Um, in Adam Bede, as quoted in the reading, she sets out with great eloquence her reasons for telling the truth and telling it straight. These fellow mortals, every one, must be accepted as they are. You can neither straighten their noses, nor brighten their wit, nor rectify their dispositions. And it is these people amongst whom your life has passed that it is needful you should tolerate, pity, and love. And yet, for that very reason, I can't help but think that George Eliot would have approved of our story this morning. In Rumi's story, the merchant turns out to be mortal with all the flaws and blindnesses that entails. The parrot turns out not to be merely decorative, but to be a real, though talking, bird, who's not so keen on being cooped up in a cage. Jalal and George, such different circumstances, such different lives, such different perspectives. Yet their voices come together for me in a harmony that is complex and deep. Rumi captures something of that harmony when he writes, life is a balance of holding on and letting go. Before I say more of that balance and that harmony, let me introduce the rest of the band. My spiritual Fab Four is rounded out by two other artists, 
the poet Emily Dickinson, and, well, maybe I'll wait to tell you the profession of number four. It's never too early to read an Emily Dickinson poem, though, so here goes. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Emily Dickinson's poetry, like that of Rumi, is indirect. It enters your heart and wriggles around, never quite settling down. Is that in opposition with George Eliot's desire to write about real people and tell the truth straight? I, I don't think so. Emily isn't one to present a prettified version of the world, nor does she do so in this poem. She is acknowledging and celebrating the intensity of reality. In fact, Emily was a huge fan of George Eliot's. She sung Eliot's praises in letters to many of her correspondents. Um, just by the by, since this was the mid-1800s in Massachusetts, she was also a big fan of Ralph Waldo Emerson. When he briefly stayed in the house next door, she said, it seems as if he had come from where dreams are born. As far as telling all the truth is concerned, Emily gave it the good old college try. Uh, she wrote almost 1,800 poems, though almost only a tiny number were published during her lifetime. In her outward circumstances, she was also a complete contrast with Rumi. She lived a reclusive existence, never traveling much further from her home in Amherst, Massachusetts than the nearby South Hadley. There she briefly attended the South Hadley Female Seminary, eventually to become Mount Holyoke College. But she was bursting with beautiful poems that addressed, slantwise, her concerns about beauty, God, death, love, and religion. Ah, oh, yes, religion. These are my spiritual heroes, so it seems somewhat fitting that each of them had a relationship with religion that was complicated. Maybe it also shouldn't be too much of a shock that the men had an easier time than the women. In his 30s, having learned from a number of distinguished teachers, Rumi was a relatively orthodox scholar and an acknowledged religious leader in Konya, where he lived. He was known for the power and eloquence of his preaching. And then came Shams of Tabriz. Shams came like an earthquake, like a thunderstorm into his settled life. Shams was an itinerant Sufi mystic, a dervish, one who has renounced the world to serve God. Shams saw the words and logic of which Rumi was at that time such a master as veils. Shams introduced him, and you'll have to apologize for my I have, must apologize for my pronunciation of, uh, of words that I don't know how to pronounce. Um, Shams introduced him to the Dikia of Samar. Dikia is a form of constant prayer, and Samar involves listening to music and poetry, sometimes accompanied by a whirling dance. Rumi wrote of Shams, 
When your love inflamed my heart, all I had was burned to ashes except your love. I put logic and learning and books on the shelf. For Rumi, the balance of holding on and letting go shifted when Shams came into his life. Rumi became an advocate of a religion of love. Oh, and whirling. Um, the Mevlevi, a Sufi order founded in Konya after Rumi's death by his followers, are often known as the whirling dervishes. Emily struggled her whole life to balance her outward holding on and her inward bursting out. She combined an intense reluctance to fit in with accepted practice and a personal religious life of striking intensity. While she was in South Hadley, a religious revival movement was underway in Massachusetts, opposed to the inroads of science and the optimism of Unitarians. <laughs> on one occasion, the founder of the seminary called on all those who wished to be Christians to rise, Emily the only one remaining seated. She wrote later, faith is a fine invention when gentlemen can see, but microscopes are prudent in an emergency. <laughs> Church going and religion were very different for Emily. I dwell in possibility, a fairer house than prose, more numerous of windows, superior for doors, of chambers as the cedars impregnable of eye, and for an everlasting roof, roof the gambrels of the sky. Of visitors, the fairest. For occupation, this. The spreading wide my narrow hands to gather paradise. George Eliot had plenty of her own scuffles with organized religion, quarreling with her father when she lost the evangelical Anglican faith she was brought up in. I could not, without vile hypocrisy and a miserable truckling to the smile of the world, she wrote to her outraged father, profess to join in worship which I wholly disapprove. She was a staunch humanist, but knew dissenters, Unitarians, including Ralph Waldo Emerson, <laughs> Methodists, and free thinkers. She wrote realistically and sympathetically about religious characters acknowledging that religion is the form through which many people have expressed their best moral impulses. The wisdom that shines through her writing is part of why Virginia Woolf called Middlemarch one of the few English novels written for grown-up people. Well, I guess it's time for me to tell you about my fourth fab. I used to live in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. <laughs> I was 18, I was taking a gap year between high school and university, and I was working as a dog's body programmer at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Friends of the family, to whom I am eternally grateful, had opened their home to a gawky, awkward, naive, rather silent adolescent, and I was living in Squirrel Hill, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. I routinely, without knowing it, walked past his house on Beechwood Boulevard and bought homesick, homesickness-assuaging English newspapers at the Squirrel Hill newsstand 
catty corner from Sixth Presbyterian, where Mr. Rogers went to church. I'd never heard of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, the show. In the years since then, I've learned more about Fred Rogers and have come to have immense respect for this complex, serious man whose goal was to present life to children in as clear and understandable a manner as possible with a generous dose of whimsy thrown in. For him, the balance of holding on and letting go was struck in the studio. He managed the many moving parts of a daily television show with meticulous attention to detail. Then, as a performer, his puppetry was fed by an intense connection with the child he had been. He was a TV star immensely shy of the spotlight. He was an actor who was exactly the same in every situation and with everyone he met. These are far from the only contradictions woven through Fred's life. He was born into a rich family and would never have had to work had he not chosen to scrimp and scrounge for the necessary shoestring to realize his dream. He was an ordained Presbyterian minister, winner of a prize for sermonizing, who had never had a pul pulpit. He fought like a tiger to convince the elders of the Pittsburgh Presbytery that the ministry to which he was called was that of telling stories to children with puppets on TV. Well, maybe I should say Fred Rogers believed that his ministry was to tell children the truth and that the truth must be understandable to children. In the early 60s, at a Good Friday service at Sixth Presbyterian, Fred Rogers heard the beautiful voice of Francois Clemens. He knew immediately that he wanted that voice on his show, then still in development, and indeed he knew exactly who he should play, that Francois should become Officer Clemens and also become the first black actor with a recurring role on a children's TV show. In an episode in 1969, Mr. Rogers, on the show, invites Officer Clemens to share his paddling pool on a hot summer day. After they sing, there are many ways to say I love you. Officer Clemens has to get back to his beat, and Mr. Rogers towels off Officer Clemens' feet. Mr. Rogers was quiet, but he wasn't afraid. Married for a time when he started on The Neighborhood, Francois later came out as gay, though not on the show. Fred initially counseled Francois to not come out publicly, but later changed his mind in the wake of the Stonewall riots. In 1993, Mr. Rogers and Officer Clemens reprised the wading pool scene. As Francois relates, he said in his ending, I like you just the way you are, and you know what? You make every day a special day just by being you, yourself. And he walked off the set. When he came around, the whole time, his eyes were holding my eyes in like a hypnotic trance. And I said, Fred, were you talking to me? And he said, yes, I've been talking to you for years, but you heard me today. Each of Jalal, Emily, George, and Fred have, with their words and deeds, changed the way I think, feel, and see. Their thoughts echo in me, whirling around in stately and exultant ways, telling me to hold on 
and to let go. And if I had to sum up the center of that whirling, I would quote Winston Hugh Auden, we must love our crooked neighbor with our crooked heart. Mr. Rogers said, the toughest thing is to love somebody who has done something mean to you, especially when that somebody has been yourself. Rumi says, in this life that is shorter than a half-taken breath, don't plant anything but love. And echoing him six centuries later, Emily Dickinson writes, in this short life that lasts only an hour, how much, how little is within our power. <laughs>